Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise read them, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, welcome back. It's been some time, hasn't it? Um, a course of over three months, really, so it's great to be back. Somebody said we ought to call this Rally Thursday, and maybe that's true. Although we have started back with other classes. We had the Rector's Forum on Sunday, but it is good to be back with this particular study. If you're joining us, perhaps, for the first time, we're delighted to have you with us today. We are in an ongoing study of Paul's epistle to the Romans, so if you have your Bibles with you, you'll want to open up to Romans chapter 3. And if you are new to this study and you think, well, he's already to Romans chapter 3, and I've missed everything that's gone before, fear not, because we're going to do a little bit of a review today. And that is necessary because when you are studying one of the epistles of the Apostle Paul, that is different from studying other books of the New Testament. Um, it is different from studying, for example, a gospel, which is basically a biography, a story of the life and ministry and work of Jesus Christ. It's different from studying a work of history, which is basically what the book of Acts is. It is the story of the early church according to the ministry of the apostles, two apostles in particular, um, Peter in the first part of that book and Paul in the latter part of that book. But an epistle is just what it sounds like. It is a letter. And in this case, the epistle to the Romans, what Paul is doing is he is building a case and he's presenting it to these Christians in Rome so that they can use his arguments, but he's basically building a case for the Christian gospel. And Paul does that with devastating logic. He's doing what any good attorney does in a courtroom. When he's got a client, he's trying to build a case on behalf of that client so that the client can ultimately prevail. And that is exactly what Paul is attempting to do here in this epistle to the Romans. He is building a case for the gospel of Jesus Christ in the hopes that we Christians, in presenting that to the world, may prevail over unbelief. Now, that means that Paul is not presenting us with nice little ideas like we would get in a devotional guide. You know, if you've got a 30-day devotional guide, what you get is a different reading and a different spiritual lesson every single day of the week. So you've got one lesson for Monday, and then you turn to Tuesday's lesson. It's going to be something a little different. It's not necessarily even from the same book of the Bible, but it's a different spiritual lesson. And I don't want to imply that there's anything wrong with that. I encourage you to use devotional guides and walk with the Lord on a daily basis. But that's not what Paul is doing here. Paul is really trying to build, as I said, a logical argument for the truth of the Christian gospel. And so you'll notice that one argument flows to the next argument. It's like a cascade, like a waterfall. It just cascades one argument into the next argument, one chapter into the next chapter. And as you've heard me say before, it's helpful to remember that when Paul wrote these letters, he did not write them with chapter divisions. Most of us, when we write letters to people, do not write, this is chapter 1, chapter 2. If we did that, they probably would not read the whole letter. 
Paul didn't do that. Those chapter divisions were put in centuries later, really in the Middle Ages, to make reading the Scriptures, and not only reading them, but digesting them, as that colleague just said, and memorizing them easier. But the chapter divisions can be helpful also because they do help us to understand how, as I said, one argument cascades or flows into the next. So here we are. We're in Romans chapter 3. At least that's where we left off in the spring. And so if you forget everything that's gone before, you're not going to be able to follow what Paul is saying here in this latter part of chapter 3. So that's why we need to go back and we need to do a quick review and sort of bring you up to speed or at least refresh your memory as to what Paul has been saying thus far in the epistle so that we can appreciate the verses that we have before us today. So Romans chapter 3, I'm not going to read the first three chapters, but we're just going to read the latter verses of chapter 3. And then let me just do a brief review of what Paul has been saying so far in this letter. And it's going to be so brief, you're going to wonder, why did it take us months to get to this point? Why couldn't he have done it with greater brevity before? Well, of course, there's a lot here. You're just getting the Reader's Digest condensed version of it. But Romans chapter 3, verse 27, Paul says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is the God, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now that's the end of chapter 3, and it really is a summation of what Paul has been arguing all along. So here's the brief summary. In chapter 1, what does Paul do? Well, in chapter 1, what he basically does is he gives us a diagnosis. He explains what the problem is for humanity. And that problem, of course, is that we have turned our backs on God. That's Paul's whole argument. He said it's not a case where we are ignorant of the truth. He said, actually, we know the truth. We know the truth. Why? Because God has made it known to us in the things that have been made. Nobody can go out there and say, well, there is no God. I believe that it's all oblivion at the end of life. He says, no, that's not true. He said, if you look at the world with, with an open mind and an open heart, you come to the realization that none of this could have happened by chance or by accident. He said, the problem for humanity is not that we are ignorant of the truth. The problem, he says, is that you and I have willfully suppressed the truth. And one of the reasons we suppress the truth is because we want to be God. If you think about it, that was the great sin of Eden, wasn't it? It wasn't that they ate of a tree. They ate of the tree so that they might be like God. What does it mean to be like God? It means to be the master of your own fate the captain of your own destiny, in charge of your own life. Nobody's going to tell me what to do, let alone God. And ultimately, that is the problem. And Paul says that is the problem for humanity. And when you suppress the truth, because we are hardwired to worship, we all worship one thing or another. We're all hardwired for worship. This is something that is unique to human beings. You can go to the most advanced society or the most primitive society on earth, and you will find that people worship. Now, sometimes their religions are very elaborate, sometimes they're very simplistic, but the reality is human beings are hardwired 
for worship. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. And so if we are going to worship something and we reject the worship of the one true God, then Paul says we inevitably end up worshiping and serving created things. We serve the creature rather than the creator. And the problem, says, Paul says, is that when you do that, you start on this downhill or downward spiral in which things go from bad to worse. And that's really what he's describing in Romans chapter 1. And he says, you know you've hit rock bottom, the very bottom of this downward spiral when what? He says, when you begin to call the things that are good evil, and when you begin to call things that are evil good, he says, that's when you know you have hit the bottom. And that is the most dangerous place of all to be. Well, if you think about it, our culture is very close to that, aren't we? Because who defines what is good and who defines what is evil? It's not something that the Congress decides. It's not something that the vagaries and fashions of a particular culture decide. Who decides what is good and what is evil? God does. In fact, if you want a simple definition of sin, and I think we have to be careful as Christians, we're living in a culture today where many people don't even know what sin is. They know that that is a religious term, but they don't understand what a sin is. Oftentimes, they conflate the idea of a sin and a crime, and they're not the same thing. A crime is a violation of the laws of man. A sin is a violation of the laws of God. So here's a simple definition of sin. A sin is a failure to do anything that God commands, and it's doing anything that God forbids. That's what sin is, pure and simple. It is a violation of the laws of God, and when we sin... When we do the things that God forbids, or we, do the, or we fail to do the things that God commands, what we're basically saying is, I'm in charge. I know what you're telling me to do, but I'm going to do my own thing. So you know you've hit rock bottom, Paul says, when all of a sudden, you're calling the things that God calls good, you're calling them evil, and the things that God forbids and calls evil, you're calling them good. And that is exactly where Western culture has arrived. And it's a very dangerous place to be. So in chapter 1, that's what Paul's doing. He's diagnosing the problem for humanity, and he says we're all there. We're all there. And he said when you are separated from God, there is no salvation. There is only despair. There is only destruction. There is only judgment. In fact, he begins that first chapter of Romans by talking about the fact that we are under the wrath of God. Now, that's a theme that we don't hear much about today in the church, but it's right there at the very beginning of this, the greatest and weightiest of all of Paul's letters, the wrath of God is being poured out on humanity because mankind has suppressed the truth, exchanged worship for the Creator for created things, served the creation, and started on this downward spiral where we begin to call things that are evil good and things that are good, we call them evil. And so we are under the judgment, the wrath of God. And the question is this, when you declare war on God, do you really think you can win? So what hope is there for us? Because Paul then goes on to say, there's nothing that you and I can do to reconcile us to God. You know, when you get into a conflict with somebody, and you know that you're in the wrong, or you realize that they are prevailing, some of the time what you present to them is what is called a peace offering. 
Ever heard that expression before? It's a peace offering. You know, sometimes I have to do that with my wife. I, you know, I've, I've done something I should not do, and I've gotten myself into trouble, or I've said something I should not say, and I will bring home a bouquet of flowers. That's a peace offering. Now, depending upon how serious the violation is, flowers may not cut it. You know, it, it, it may require a, a nice meal at a restaurant. And if you've really messed up, it, it may be, you know, Krogan's jewelry store by the time. But whatever it is, you have to make a peace offering, don't you? And so many people think, well, all right, I'm not in a right relationship with God. I'll present some sort of a peace offering. But here's the question. What can you and I possibly offer to God that he cannot provide for himself? See, nothing. Nothing. And so that leads Paul to his second argument, chapter 2. And that is basically this that if we are going to be delivered from the wrath of God, God alone has to deliver us. We cannot deliver ourselves. We cannot extricate ourselves from this terrible place we have put ourselves in. We cannot offer God anything to placate His wrath. If we're going to be delivered, it is going to be solely on the basis of His mercy. And that's really what chapter 2 is all about. It's about the solution. And what God does is He provides for us a righteousness, that is to say, a right relationship with Him that we do not have in and of ourselves. It is what theologians sometimes refer to as an alien righteousness because it comes from somewhere else. It's not our righteousness it is an alien righteousness. And where does that alien righteousness find its fulfillment? In the person and work of Jesus Christ. So God provides us with a righteousness that we do not have, and that righteousness comes in the person of Jesus Christ. God makes the peace offering. Now, He's the injured party. We should be making one to Him, but because we cannot make a peace offering to Him, He makes a peace offering to us. He makes peace with us by His Son's death upon the cross. That is the solution to the problem. And how do we receive so great a salvation? How do we receive this peace offering, this extraordinary gift that God offers to us? That's what chapter 3 is all about. We receive this great gift by faith. And not just by faith, but as the Reformers used to say, by faith alone. You can't add anything to it. It's only faith. How much do we contribute to our salvation? Nothing except the sin from which we need to be redeemed. This is solely by faith, by faith alone. So since we're getting to the heart of chapter 3, just take a look at chapter 3. Verse 21, but now. Those are wonderful words. Those two words are the hinge upon which this whole thing turns. But now. Situation's been pretty bleak up to this point. Let's be honest. You're under the wrath of God. You've made a mess of your own lives. You've come to this point where you're now so confused, so darkened in your thinking, that you think good is evil and evil is good, and there's nothing that you can do to get yourself out of it. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. And you think, well, that is a pretty despairing argument. 
but now. Two precious words, but now. Verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There it is. That's the heart of the gospel, my friends. That's what God has done for us. He's made a righteousness. And when I say righteousness, I'm, I'm not talking about just in terms of our behavior. I'm really talking about in terms of our relationship. You've heard me say many times before, Christianity is not so much about religion as it is about relationship. It's about a person. It's about being in fellowship. Back in the 17th and 18th century, the Puritans used to say that the essence of salvation, when you think of salvation, what do you think of? Most people, when they think of the essence of salvation, they think about going to heaven when we die. That's salvation. But if you think of it only in those terms, you're thinking of something future, aren't you? But when the Puritans thought of salvation, they thought of salvation as not only a future event, but a present reality. For them, it was not escaping the late great planet Earth when we die. For them, true salvation was union with Christ. That is the essence of salvation, to be united with Christ, who is all in all. That is the essence of salvation, to be united with Christ. And how does that happen? It happens because Christ has reconciled us to God by his death and we receive his great salvation by faith. So that's Paul's argument in Romans chapters 1, chapter 2, and the first part of chapter 3. Now, where we are today, verses 27 and following, Paul then goes on to describe three of the implications of this great salvation. This alien righteousness that has been given to us and which we receive by faith. What are the implications of this great salvation, this great deliverance that God has provided because we could not provide it for ourselves? Well, the first thing that Paul says is that it excludes boasting. That's the first implication of this great salvation. It excludes boasting. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Paul is saying if you're saved by grace, when it is to say God's undeserved, unearned favor, not because by virtue of anything that you've done, but by faith alone, he said then there is really no reason to boast. You know, human beings are boasting creatures, aren't we? Let's, let's just be honest about it. We like to boast, and we boast about everything, small things and big things. Now, the root of all of that is pride. Let's just be honest. The, the root of all boasting is pride, and that is problematic because pride is one of the seven deadly sins. In fact, the medieval theologian said it was the first of the seven deadly sins, not to suggest that all sin isn't deadly. That's not what the medieval theologians were saying. They were simply saying that all the other sins that you and I commit ultimately can be traced back to these seven. And the first and the deadliest of them all is this whole sin of pride. Now, I want to make a distinction here because 
that makes it sound like all pride is bad. And that depends. Certainly there is a good kind of pride. When a person works hard at their job because they're doing it unto the Lord, they take pride in their work, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. That's not the kind of pride we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of pride that has a desire not merely to be good, but better than someone else. And that's the kind of pride that is so deadly. It's not just satisfied with being good, doing the best we can. I want to be better than you. How many of you can relate to that? C.S. Lewis um, wrote, I think, in a very compelling way on this whole question of pride. I think part of that was due to the fact that Lewis probably knew that pride was something that he was subject to in his own life. You know, he was a great intellect. He was a brilliant man. He was a brilliant writer. He was an accomplished individual. And the smarter you are, the more accomplished you are, the more pride has a tendency to creep in. And I think that's one of the reasons he was very aware of that in his own life, and I think that's one of the reasons he was able to write about it in such a compelling way. But this is what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He says, now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. Is competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. It goes on to explain. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else becomes equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. That's true, isn't it? If we all looked exactly the same, how could I be proud that I'm better looking than you are? He said, it is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. That is why I say that pride is essentially competitive in a way that the other vices are not. The sexual impulse may drive two men into competition if they both want the same girl. But that is only by accident. They might just as likely have wanted two different girls. But a proud man will take your girl from you, not because he wants her, but just to prove to himself that he is a better man than you. Is this hitting the mark? Anybody, anybody relate to this? If you say no, if you say no, that's probably indicative of the fact that it is a problem in your life. Because you're proud of your humility. You're humbler than the person next to you. He said greed may drive men into competition if there's not enough food or resources to go around. But the proud man, even when he has got more than he can possibly want, will try to get still more just to assert his power. Nearly all those evils in the world which people put down to greed or selfishness are really far more the result of pride. 
I think that is a powerful statement. And that is what Paul is talking about here. He says, if you really understand the doctrine of grace, if you really understand how far bad you've gone, and you understand how great God's mercy is toward you, an undeserving sinner, he said, there's no room for boasting. But if you don't understand how bad you are, and you do not see the value of God's grace, then you are going to boast. I know I'm not perfect. But I know I'm better than her. <laughs> see, that's the competition, isn't it? That's the competition. And Paul says that undercuts the doctrine of grace. It undercuts God's great salvation. He said, but if you really understand it, all boasting is gone. And I'm just going to tell you, there are lots of places where pride creeps into our life, but the most dangerous and insidious of all places is when it comes to religion. It's when it comes to religion. Because when you are proud of anything in your religious life, anything at all, basically what you're saying is, I want God to acknowledge the fact that I'm better than someone else. That's basically what you're saying. When pride, if you're proud of anything in terms of your religious life, well, I'm proud that I go to Bible study. What you're really saying is God acknowledge the fact that I'm better because somebody else doesn't. When you say, Lord, I'm so proud of how much I give to the church on an annual basis, what you're really saying is, Lord, acknowledge the fact that I do better than somebody else. See how pride has a way of creeping in? You see how boasting has a way? Even if we're not boasting before men, there is a sense in which we are what? Boasting before God. And puffing ourselves up makes us feel better. Let me give you a perfect example of this kind of religious, spiritual boasting. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn back to Luke for just a moment. You'll know the story. It's a familiar one to us. Luke chapter 18. One of Jesus' great parables beginning at chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, pride. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, O oh God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be Exalted. Let me tell you something. When Jesus told that parable, the ending was a surprise. Because everybody in that audience knew that what the Pharisee was saying was true. He did pray on a regular basis. He did fast on a regular basis. 
He did give a tenth of everything that he received. And when I say a tenth of everything he received, that means before taxes. All right? He's doing everything that is required, everything that is necessary. It was all true. But what was this man guilty of? The sin of pride, which was all the worse. Because he was asking for God to acknowledge that, yes, you are better than that miserable tax collector. And see, that's where pride creeps in. I'm not perfect. I know that because the Bible says I'm not perfect, so I have to acknowledge that. But I am better than them. And Paul says, if that's what you think, you don't understand anything. You need to go back and read Romans chapter 1 and put yourself in that downward spiral. That's what Paul is saying. And so he's saying, if you really understand the gospel of grace, if you really understand that, yeah, you may not have done what that person over there did, but part of that is due to the fact that you never had the opportunity. You know, there are lots of things that you and I, if the circumstances were right, would probably do, but thanks be to God, the circumstances have never been right. But what we need to realize is whether or not we've done them, we are all, every single one of us, capable of doing them. That's what Paul is saying. Whether or not you've done it, the point is that you are capable of doing it. This is why the Bible describes the evil day. Have you ever heard that expression, the evil day? You know what the evil day is? The evil day is when your desires and your opportunities meet. You know, there are times in your life when you don't have a desire to do a certain thing. The opportunity's there, but you really don't have the desire to do it. Let's take adultery as an example, because that's an obvious example. You, you, you don't have the desire to be unfaithful to your wife, but the opportunity's there. There's somebody that's, you know, attracted to you, but the desire's not there. There are other occasions when you are really attracted to somebody else, you've got the desire, but the opportunity's not there. She's not interested in you. What's the evil day? The evil day is when the desire and the opportunity meets. And that's why the Bible says that we are to flee temptation. So what Paul is saying is whether or not you've committed the offense, the reality is we need to acknowledge the fact, and this is God speaking, we are all capable of it. And therefore, we realize that God's grace is the only thing that can save us. And when we realize that we're no better off than our neighbor, that there's no ground for our puffing ourselves up, he said, then boasting is automatically excluded. Just think of all the areas, even in religion, where we can boast and where we have a tendency to boast. Let's be honest about it. In our morality... This is the most obvious example of what we've been talking about. Well, I'm not perfect, but I am better than my neighbor. I've never done what he or she did. So we boast in our morality. But you know, the Bible says that spiritually speaking, we're dead. And so when you say, I'm better off than that person, that's like saying, well, that dead corpse is better off than that dead corpse. I got news for you, they're both dead. <laughs> They're both in precisely the same situation. The person that is buried in the churchyard 
in 2007 and the person who was buried there in 1787 are both in the same boat. They're both dead. But we have a tendency to boast in our morality, don't we? It's like asking, how rotten is rotten meat? It's rotten. We have a tendency to boast in our knowledge, don't we? That's often what we do. Well, I, I know the Bible backward and forward. I can recite all the books of the Bible. I know all 12 of the apostles. I can name all the kings of Israel. I understand all the doctrines. I understand justification, sanctification. I can even explain to you the doctrine of the Trinity better than St. Patrick did it. I, you've got all of this knowledge, and you pride yourself, what? In your knowledge, thinking that that is enough to save you. When in fact, Paul, in this very same chapter, says, no one understands God. No one seeks God. None of us understands completely. You may understand a little bit more than somebody else, but you do not understand. We have a tendency to pride ourselves in our religious affections. That was a term that Jonathan Edwards used. Probably a better translation for us today would be our pious feelings. You know how it is. You're in church, and the preacher says something, or certain hymns being sung, and you find yourself strangely moved. You may even get misty-eyed. And you pride yourself on the fact that you're sensitive. I'm moved. My neighbor over there could care less, but, but I'm moved by all of this. I, I must be something special. God must really be doing something to me. And see how it just creeps in a little bit of pride? I'm a little more spiritually attuned than he is. Perhaps the most pernicious way that pride creeps into our religious life is we turn faith itself into a work, don't we? We turn faith itself into a work. Let me ask you a question. If you were to die, and your neighbor was to die, and you arrive in heaven, and your neighbor does not, and St. Peter at the gate asks the question, why are you here and your neighbor is not? What are you going to say to that? Well, what many people would say, well, I believed in Jesus Christ. And my neighbor did not. Now that sounds, on the face of it, correct, right? But what you're basically saying is, you did something that your neighbor failed to do, which means that you have a right to come in when your neighbor does not. Who gets the credit for that? I did something. I had faith. My neighbor did not. You see how subtle it is? How faith itself gets turned into a work? Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about faith. Faith as Paul understands it. He said, faith is nothing but the instrument of our salvation. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that we are justified because of our faith. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that we are justified on account of our faith. The Scripture never says that. The Scripture says that we are justified by faith or through faith. 
Faith is nothing but the instrument or the channel by which this righteousness of God in Christ becomes ours. It is not faith that saves us. What saves us is the Lord Jesus Christ and His perfect work. It is the death of Christ upon Calvary's cross that saves us. It is His perfect life that saves us. It is His appearing on our behalf in the presence of God that saves us. It is God's putting Christ's righteousness to our account that saves us. This is the righteousness that saves. Faith is but the channel and the instrument by which His righteousness becomes mine. The righteousness is entirely Christ. My faith is not my righteousness, and I must never define or think of faith as righteousness. Faith is nothing but that which links us to the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness. So while we are saved by faith, we are not saved on account of our faith. So Paul says, all grounds for boasting, all grounds for boasting are excluded. That's the first implication of this great gospel. Here's the second implication, Paul says, of this great gospel, this alien righteousness that God has brought into our lives. It means that salvation is open to all without exception. Salvation is open to all without exception. That's what Paul means in verses 29 and 30 when he says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. You and I live in a much smaller world than people lived in 200 years ago. And we know that. In fact, we live in a much smaller world than people lived in 50 years ago. 30 years ago. How is it smaller? Well, it's smaller in the sense that if you, 200 years ago, wanted to travel from North America to Great Britain, how would you travel and how long would it take you? Well, it would take you probably weeks to get across the Atlantic Ocean, depending upon the storms and so forth, and you were traveling by sail. How long does it take to get across the Atlantic Ocean? Six, seven hours. And when the Concorde was flying, a lot less than that. Not only that, but even 50 years ago, if you had a relative that lived in Spain or in Ireland or someplace like that, how did you communicate with them? If it, you could communicate by mail, yes, but the world had become smaller. You no longer had to rely on mail. You could what? Call them up. You could actually call them on the telephone. You get an overseas operator and you would talk to them on the telephone. How can you talk to a person today? Instantaneously. And you not only hear their voice, you can see their face. You can Zoom call with them. You can Skype with them. You can have an instantaneous... See how the world has become smaller and smaller and smaller? 200 years ago, to travel from Florida to Maine would have taken you longer than it takes today to travel across the ocean. So the world is smaller. Now, what is the implication of that? Well, when the world was a lot bigger than it is today, there were always many religions out there. 
but most people didn't pay much attention to them. I mean, people in North America really, they perhaps knew that there were Hindus and there were Muslims and there were Sikhs and so forth, but they didn't have much contact with them, let's be honest. Now, we have contact with them on a regular basis. Right here in Charleston, the holy city, whose skyline, until recently, used to be dominated by church steeples. We have Muslim temples. We have Hindu temples. We have every kind of denomination you can imagine. It's a different world. We live in a pluralistic world. Cheek and jowl with all kinds of religions, all kinds of faiths, all kinds of beliefs. We have encounters with these people. And there is a problem with that because we're living in this politically correct age where if you imply that somehow my religion is better than your religion, then you are considered to be what? Prejudiced, narrow-minded, cruel. You're guilty of hate speech, all of these different things. And so now that we're living in this smaller world, how do we deal with all of these different religions? What do we say about people who believe differently than we do? Well, really, there are only three basic responses to this whole issue of pluralism. I'm reminded of something that Sir Edward Gibbon said in his great work, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He said, in the ancient world, the common people regarded all religions as equal, equally true. He said the philosophers regarded all religions as equally false. And the politicians regarded all religions as equally useful. Well, if you think about it, very little has changed, hasn't it? I mean, that is exactly where we are today. But it's that first category that many people say. We have to believe, we have to be convinced, we have to say that all religions are equal. They're equally true. They're equally valid. And that's one way to deal with the problem of pluralism in our world, in, the, in this shrinking world. We want to say that all religions are equally true. They ultimately lead to the same place. We're all climbing the same mountain, and you may go up one side, I may go up the other side, but we're all going to reach the same summit. All the rivers of faith flow into the same ocean. How many of you have ever heard that in the world today? It's exactly what we're taught. That's exactly what the culture wants us to believe. So that's one way of dealing with pluralism. The second way is to say, well, no, we don't want to say that all religions are equal, but we are willing to say that some are more efficient than others. All right? We don't want to say that, they're all, that there are some that are better than others, and we can't say that they're all equal, but we will say that some are more efficient than others. Yes, um, I believe that all rivers will eventually make it to the same great sea of faith, but mine is a more direct route than yours. Yours is a little more circuitous, and, and it bends and it turns, and eventually you're going to get there, but, but my route is going to be a little quicker. That's another way of dealing with it. The Christian response, of course, to this whole problem of pluralism is to say that there is only one way. There's only one way. And we say that because Jesus himself said it. In John chapter 14, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Now, if he had stopped there, people would be very satisfied. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. It would have been even better if he had said, I am a way, a truth, a life. But it's what comes next 
that really offends people in the culture today. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father, what? But by me. You know, it's interesting. That's one of the passages that is assigned to be read at funerals in the Book of Common Prayer. And yet I notice how many times when I go to funerals in other places, not here, where they will read John 14 and cut off that last part. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, period. And they leave off that part, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because it's offensive in this small, pluralistic age in which we live. And yet as Christians, we have to believe that. We have to believe it. Why? Well, not because it's our idea. It's because Jesus himself said it. You got a problem with it, take it up with him. He's the one that says it. So as Christians, we do believe that there's only one way to salvation. And as I said, many people regard that as narrow-minded, as judgmental. Who do you think you are to believe that your way is better than any other way? But the interesting thing about this message of salvation, this one way, is that while there's only one way, Paul reminds us here in Romans chapter 3 that we don't have any reason to boast about it because it's one way that is open to everybody. Every single person. There may only be one way, but all, without exception, may use it. That's why Paul says, is God the God of the Jews only? Let me tell you, in Paul's day, that's exactly what the Jews believed. The Jews were unique because they were monotheistic. Now, the three major religions in the world today, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, are all monotheistic. But you have to understand that in the first century, in Paul's day, monotheism was unique. In fact, it was regarded as bizarre. In fact, the only monotheistic religion in the world in Paul's day was Judaism. Everybody else believed in a whole pantheon of gods and deities. In fact, Jews were often accused of being, listen to this, atheists. Not because they didn't believe in a god, but because they didn't believe in many gods. You remember when the Apostle Paul went to Athens? We're told that when he arrived in Athens, and I've always thought Paul was probably most excited about visiting Athens, of all the places that he visited, because it was the kind of place that he came from. Paul was an intellectual. He'd grown up in Tarsus, which was a great intellectual university center. It had a great library there. And I think of all the places he was going, he wanted to go to Athens. That's, that's the kind, be like a man going from Harvard, who grew up, went to Harvard, going to Oxford, to a university that's like his own, but older and even more distinguished. And yet we're told that when Paul got to Athens, he was so discouraged. Have you ever gone to some place anticipating it's going to be one thing and you get there and it's nothing like you imagine and you're disappointed? Paul was disappointed. And why? Because we're told when he arrived, the city was filled with idols. Here were these people who were supposed to be the great intellectuals of their day and they believed in a whole pantheon of gods. They used to say that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. And if you've ever been to Athens... And I have more than once. Let me tell you something. It is true. There are temples everywhere. Temples on top of temples. The Acropolis is nothing but a place of temples. It is just filled with them. And if you were here last night when Bill did his homily, Bill, are you here? Did his homily last night. He talked a little bit about this. 
Paul discovered there was even a temple what? To an unknown God. They were afraid that they missed one. They didn't want to offend him, whoever he was, so they just erected a monument to an unknown God. That is the world in which Paul moved. But the Jews said no. The Jews said there's only one God. And they were proud of that belief. Now, that did not mean that Gentiles couldn't be saved. But it did mean that the only way you get saved is by becoming a Jew. Gentiles could come into fellowship with God, but they had to become Jews first. The Jews believed that they had something over the Gentiles. And Paul was saying, no. He was saying that Jews are saved in precisely the same way that Gentiles are saved. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul is not saying that the Gentiles were therefore better than the Jews because the Jews were filled with pride. Not at all. Gentiles had their own problems. Theirs was a culture of moral depravity. But what Paul is saying is that the Jews used to pride themselves on being monotheistic, on, on getting it right. And he said, but if you think about it, Jews are saved in precisely the same way as the Gentiles are saved. Why? Because whether they like it or not, Jews are in precisely the same position spiritually in terms of their relationship, their sin, as the Gentiles. So what Paul is really offering here, he says, is a universal gospel. We're all sinners. There's only one way for a sinner to be saved, and that is by God's amazing gift of alien righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ. And that gift of righteousness can only be received by the simple gift of faith. And that doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. If you're educated or ignorant, you're rich or you're poor, we're all in the same boat and we are all saved in precisely the same way. And therefore, there should be no boasting. There is only one way, but that is a way that is open to all individuals. So let me put it to you in terms of three questions. In light of what Paul says there, that God is not the God of the Jews only, but also the God of the Gentiles, here's the question. Who may come and receive by faith this wonderful gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ? Who may come? Everyone, whoever you are, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter the color of your skin, doesn't matter your IQ, whoever you are, Paul is saying you may come. How may we come? What's the old hymn say? Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. We may come just as we are. You may come as an adult, and many people do. One of my ministries over the years has been to evangelize the church. I can't tell you how many people over the course of my ministry have come up to me and said, I've been going to church my whole life, and until now I never understood what this was really all about. The light bulb went on for me. I once met a lady and she came to faith when I was at St. Helena's. I can't say it was through me, but through the ministry that was taking place there. And I walked into the church one day. She was the docent and she was sitting in the back of the church and she was crying. And I said, Molly, what's wrong? And she said, I'm so angry at this woman. And I said, who? And she said, me. She said, when I think of all the wasted years. 
She came as an adult, and she grieved over the fact that how different her life would have been had she come years before. But you come as an adult. You may come to him as an adult. You may come to him as a child. Now, some people will say, well, children can't understand this. Here's what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said about preaching to children. He said, if they are old enough to understand that they can sin, if they're old enough to understand that they can die, they are old enough to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you can come as an adult. You can come as a child. You may come running to Christ, eager for the gift of His pardon and His grace. Or you may come limping, haltingly. You may come in an eager manner, or you may come in a hesitant manner. You may come with your questions and with your doubts, your worries and your concerns. When C.S. Lewis finally gave in and received the grace of Jesus Christ by faith, he described himself as the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. He came haltingly. But the point is that all may come. Nobody will be excluded if they come to Jesus Christ. When may I come? Anytime. But sooner rather than later. Again, this is how Spurgeon put it. He said, oh, my dear hearers, come to Jesus. Come in the morning when the dew is on your branch, for he will not cast you out. Come in the heat of noon when the drought of care parches you, and he will not cast you out. Come when the shadows have grown long and the darkness of the night is gathering about you, for he will not cast you out. The door is not shut, for the gate of mercy closes not so long as the gate of life is open. So this great salvation excludes all boasting. And another implication of this great gospel of salvation is that it is open to all people. Here's the third implication, and we'll go through this quickly. This great salvation, this alien righteousness that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ, not on account of our faith, but through faith in Jesus Christ, this guarantees, and it is the only guarantee, that the law of God is ultimately upheld. You know, one of the charges that was brought against Paul, and he's going to deal with this later in the sixth chapter of Romans, and particularly in Galatians, but one of the charges that was brought against Paul is that if you believe that you're saved by grace and not by works, then you're going to live like hell. I mean, why not? If it's, it's not on account of anything we do, we're saved entirely by the grace of God and we receive that by faith and not by works, then it doesn't matter how we live. Now that's one of the arguments that is made. And of course, it's not true. And Paul goes on at great length, as I said in Romans chapter 6, to explain why that's not true. But let me suggest to you just two reasons why it's not true. First of all, it's wrong, it's not true psychologically. Because that implies that the only reason to do good works is because you have afraid, you're afraid of going to hell. And let me tell you something. As a parent, I can guarantee you, 
fear is not the best motivator. If the only reason you're doing something is because you're afraid of what's going to happen to you if you don't, that's not a very good motivator. That is a service of drudgery. And that's not what God wants for us. So it's wrong psychologically. It's also wrong theologically. Because it implies that when we come into a relationship with Christ, nothing happens to us. It is true, we may come just as we are, but God loves us too much to leave us just the way we are. When we come to Him, He takes up residence in our life, in our heart, and He begins a process called sanctification, whereby He begins to transform us into the very thing He's declared us to be, righteous men and women. So it's wrong psychologically, it's wrong theologically. But as I said, Paul will deal with that later on in this letter. But that's not his real focus. When he says that the law is upheld by this great salvation, that's what he's talking about, verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What he is saying is that this does not mean that everything God said in the Old Testament about the law and the necessity of the law, all of that is somehow done away with. That is not what he's saying. He's saying what has happened is that God has provided a fulfillment of the law. That everything that the law and the prophets required has been met in the person of Jesus Christ. The high standards of the law, of the law have not been lowered. They have been maintained. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. You know, Jesus is described as the new Adam. That is to say, what the old Adam was incapable of doing, the new Adam has done on our behalf. The old Adam was incapable of keeping the law. The new Adam has kept the law perfectly. Jesus kept the law perfectly. He was like us in every respect except for one. What? He never sinned. He never sinned. It also means the due penalty for sin has been executed. You remember back in Genesis at the very beginning of the story of creation, God placed the man and the woman in the garden and he said, you can eat of any tree in the midst of the garden, but if you eat of this one, you will die. Did they eat of that one? They did. Have we been dying ever since? You better believe it, spiritually, morally, physically. But Jesus Christ because he was the perfect man who kept the law, because he was the new Adam, our representative, died once for all. For the sins of the whole world, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. How many of you have ever heard those words before? And the law has been upheld, Paul says, because the punishment for sin has been executed, because the standards of the law have not been lowered, Christ fulfilled them all, but also because it shows that exact obedience is what is required. And because we couldn't do it, God came and did it for us. And therefore, there is no cause on the part of anyone to boast about any. So here's a summary of the first three chapters of Romans. God has provided a righteousness of his own because we did not possess a righteousness. 
This righteousness comes to us by grace alone, God's undeserved, unearned favor in the person of Jesus Christ. It is by Christ's sacrifice that the law is fulfilled and it alone makes salvation available. And this salvation becomes ours not by virtue of anything we do, but solely and completely by, not on account of, faith. What a powerful message for us. Have we anything to boast about? Anything? Paul says there's one thing to boast about. He said, God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to boast, let us boast in that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this great message of the epistle to the Romans. It is indeed a powerful, powerful book for us and for our lives. We sometimes don't realize how subtle pride can be and how we always want to add something to this great message of salvation. Lord, I think that probably the message of grace is the hardest of all the Christian doctrines for us to grasp. Harder than the Trinity, harder than the idea that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. I think grace is the hardest of the doctrines for us to grasp because we always want to add something to it. But grant us the ability to accept your free gift, to boast in nothing but the finished, accomplished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Keep us humble, Lord, and grant that we boast in nothing but his cross. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.